Welcome to Blind Date with Knowledge. This is a weekly half-hour talk show featuring Queen's University researchers and scholars. The show is a platform for Queen's researchers to discuss the significance to and benefits of their research on everyday lives. I'm Barry Kaplan, the show's host. In this episode, my guest is DJ Cook. Dr. Cook is a neurosurgeon at Kingston Health Sciences Centre and an associate professor in the Department of Surgery at Queen's. In 2018, he was named Canada's Top 40 Under 40. He was recognized for his work in developing minimally invasive surgical procedures for complex brain disorders and for his innovative research focusing on therapy and treatments to enhance recovery for stroke patients. His Translational Stroke Research Lab has received funding from the Canada Foundation for Innovation. In his spare time, he runs Otter Creek Farms, where he incorporates a scientific approach to raising Japanese Wagyu cattle. Did I say that right? Wagyu? <laughs> it's Wagyu. Wagyu? Yeah. Okay. Maybe we'll talk about that. It's a that. Com- compound word. Okay. Yeah. We'll talk about that later in the show. So thanks for, uh, for coming out and, uh, and uh, being my guest on uh, today's episode. Let's uh, leave the cattle for later. Let's talk about brain health. Let's talk about uh, uh, surgery, brain surgery, uh, improving brain performance. What happens to the brain after stroke or trauma? So the brain is essentially an organ that's connected through um, axons. So it's a number of neurons, which are the, the workhorse cells of the brain connected through axons, which are like wires. And so the brain works as a distributed network um, when it's healthy. After an injury or a stroke, there's a disruption to this network performance and connectivity within the network. And that results in uh, functional issues that we detect through clinical impairments. So, okay, so part of the brain isn't functioning properly. Can, do we have the techniques? Do we have the rehabilitation therapy strategies to enable other parts of the brain to compensate for that deficiency? Yeah, so there's an inherent process that occurs after an injury, which we kind of colloquially call neuroplasticity, which is the brain's attempt to rewire and remap in order to replace the functions that have been lost. The human brain is kind of inherently lazy if you just leave it to its own devices. And so what it can do is actually, say you have a stroke that affects your left hand and you can't use your left hand anymore. Instead of rewiring in a way that it improves the function of the left hand by trying to replace those pathways that are lost, the inherent pattern of recovery in the brain is actually to start using the right hand to take over functions from the left hand. And so you actually start to neglect and and lose the function of the left hand and it, and it actually gets worse with time. What we're doing now in stroke is forcing people to use that affected limb or the affected function and really force them to kind of push the brain to remap and rekindle those connections that allow it to Uh, replace the function that's lost. And this can be done in several ways. The most common way right now is through constraint-induced movement therapy where we basically tie down the opposite limb or the opposite hand and force people to use their affected hand. Um, This is a very rudimentary approach. Uh, Robots are being implemented to improve this therapy. 
and now what we're doing is looking at ways of using electrical stimulation, uh, different pharmacotherapies, uh, different brain surgeries, and uh, implanted drugs and cells to try and uh, improve that rewiring process and replace therapy. That sounds so cool. Now, I would think you're a neurosurgeon, so you would be going into the skull, I would think, and, and mucking about and, and doing your thing. So when you talked about constraint, I'm thinking, is that more like an occupational therapy thing? And I'm wondering, in the research you're doing, is this you and a bunch of other people with different uh, disciplinary backgrounds? Yeah, I mean, it's a very multidisciplinary approach. Um, so the therapy end is, is done by folks in physical medicine and rehabilitation, occupational therapy, speech language pathology, physiotherapy. And they become a critical part of the team. My research lab and my personal interest is really in understanding how the brain responds to injury and how it changes in the process of recovery. We want to understand these mechanisms so we can enhance recovery. So I'm a little different than the average surgical researcher who's, you know, interested in cutting and sewing and cold steel. Mm. Um, I, I'm very interested in network connectivity in the brain and having metrics to measure this. And so we've created uh, MRI uh, measures using multiple sequences to look at metabolic health in the brain, uh, communication within the distributed network called connectivity mapping, and then uh, actual anatomic structural imaging of the white matter called diffusion tensor imaging. And we've created some specific sort of clues within each of these sequences to gather more information. Then we recombine this uh, using bioinformatics techniques, uh, machine learning techniques to understand what combinations of health and structure or, you know, disease and structure result in functional deficits and or promote recovery. Wow. It sounds much, much more information technology based um, uh, than, like you were saying, the, the, the scalpel uh, steel kind of yeah. a, a approach. So are, are we talking now about the work that you're doing in your translational stroke research lab with, with the MRI imaging? Is that? Yeah. So this is what we do in the translational stroke research lab. That, that, that research program was initially founded and designed to provide what we call translational models. Um, so models that allow us to take information that's garnered from cell cultures and animal models and then translate it into uh, the human scenario so it's applicable to clinical trials. And that's really where my research started and how I founded the lab. Through this, we've developed these MR techniques and a very strong interest in neurobehavior um, and sensory motor testing that has now become this sort of greater application around understanding structural, functional um, brain health. And we're applying this not only to stroke, but also to minor traumatic brain injury or concussion. Hmm. Um, and so that's become a very common human model for us to explore. Wow. I want to come back to something you mentioned uh, a moment ago where you were talking about the sequence um, um, when you're focusing in on, on measuring brain activity. Is the sequence a matter of seconds? Or are you talking about sort of pre-intervention, post-intervention measurements that could be days apart? What Talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, sure. So there's 
there is a temporal pattern to all of this. And it's really interesting that you asked that. So currently we're actually working on understanding using functional MRI patterns of brain connectivity that make people more resilient to stroke. So people, some people seem to be more prepared to mm. handle a stroke than others. Is that so, attitudinally or is that uh, anatomically? It's, it's an anatomical functional um, state. We don't understand why it is. I'm interested in understanding if I can create techniques to improve people's resiliency to stroke or brain injury by training the brain to be wired in a certain way. That is so cool. Now, is this the kind of training that you see in some of those software apps where you, the, you, know, you play games and it's supposed to exercise your brain or is that? Yeah, absolutely. So this is something that I'm really keen on right now. I've been doing a lot of work in athletics though, very high, high level uh, elite athletics at the professional and Olympic level basically helping athletes to understand where their neurologic um, shortcomings lie and then overcome this through training. And we're doing a ton of work with um, different sports teams um, uh, throughout Canada and the U.S., um, also with some specific trainers who are considered leaders in this area, and then also with a company called Performance Phenomics, which is a Toronto-based company that is basically developing uh, training tasks to help athletes, uh, you know, optimize their neurologic fitness. I want to ask one more question before we go into our final segment. And uh, in reading some of the background on the work that you're doing, I, I know you've developed this technique where you, you call it keyhole incision. Am I got, oh, am yeah. I, so, key. so tell us what that is and tell us what the old method was. Yeah. So keyhole, I can't take all the credit for keyhole surgery. I, I And really... What I've done is built on, you know, the shoulders of giants in, in my field. Like Dr. Pernetsky was probably the original proponent of keyhole surgery. He's unfortunately passed now. Um, but what we've done is created techniques that allow us to make tiny incisions and tiny craniotomies or openings in the skull and then work through the most optimal pathway to disrupt the least amount of functional brain to remove a lesion. And so we're able to do things now like um, clip an aneurysm through a small incision in the eyebrow and send the patient home the same day. Wow. Traditionally, they'd have a very large incision. It would be painful because you'd have to take down the muscle, the temporalis muscle on the side of the head, uh, make a large uh, craniotomy, um, which is an opening in the skull, retract the brain, release all the spinal fluid, wow. and they would be in the hospital for four or five days. Now it's a same-day procedure. Similarly, we're doing things like brain tumor resections in complex areas like language areas through the tiniest possible hole because we're able to map out where functions lie in the brain and how the brain communicates prior to going in. That's just amazing. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm so uh, turned on by the kinds of things that you're doing and the, the benefit for so many segments of society with this, this research. Thanks. I close out each episode of Blind Date with Knowledge by asking my guests to share something personal related to their research or their motivation associated with their research. So, DJ, back to you. Well, I mean, for me, I've been working as a neurosurgeon for the better part of two decades now. And so I've had the privilege of, of meeting and working with many patients who've suffered you know, significant neurologic deficits due to various disease states. 
And there's a very common theme running through all of these people, which is this desire to survive and this, or this will to survive and this desire to improve. And I think that if there's anything we can do to help them uh, overcome their deficits and have a better outcome, uh, even the slightest, slightest thing for them is, is actually a major, major improvement. It has huge meaning for them. And so I, you know, I draw on these experiences, which I have over and over again, uh, to really drive us forward. And, and that's the ultimate motivation behind the lab. That's fantastic. Just quickly, why brain and not some other organ? I mean, I was just drawn to the brain uh, at an early age. Um, I was in agricultural school, had to take psychology as a, as a requirement, and it just drew me in, and I've never stopped since. The brain is, you know, the last sort of unexplored territory of medicine, and I just, I just love the complexity, uh, and, I, and I love, you know, the exploration involved in, in understanding it. Wow, you sound like, uh, I don't know, a space explorer. And at you know, <laughs> 40 years old, this is uh, just awesome. So my guest in, in this episode of Blind Date with Knowledge has been DJ Cook. DJ is an associate professor, Department of Surgery, Kingston Health Sciences Centre. If you have a question about anything related to research that you'd like discussed by our guests, or if you have comments about today's conversation with DJ Cook, please email me, Barry Kaplan, at bdwk at cfrc.ca. Thank you for tuning in. Welcome to Blind Date with Knowledge. This is a weekly half-hour talk show featuring Queen's University researchers and scholars. The show is a platform for Queen's researchers to discuss the significance to and the benefits of their research on everyday lives. I'm Barry Kaplan, the show's host. In this episode, my guest is Tandy Thomas. Dr. Tandy Thomas is an Associate Professor of Marketing and a Distinguished Faculty Fellow of Marketing at the Smith School of Business at Queen's University. In her research, she explores the intersection of consumer culture theory and social psychology, looking at the interplay between consumers, their social context, and marketing activities. Her current projects focus on how people perceive advertisements how advertisements are socially embedded, how consumption communities influence consumption practices, and how consumers navigate marketplace decision-making. Hi, Tandy. Hi. Thank you for uh, being on the show today. Oh, it's my pleasure. So let's, let's talk a little bit about uh, consumer culture theory and, and the intersection of social, social psychology. Give us a few examples of, of what you have been looking at and what makes it unique to you. So what my research does is it really looks at the social elements of consumption and consumer behavior. And by social, I really mean the groups in which people are embedded. So for example, I um, did some research that looked at the running community mm. and how people who are part of this collective identity and this collective community, how that impacts their lives and how that impacts the way that marketers and companies need to interact with those individuals um, on a one-on-one -on -one basis, but also thinking about them as a group. Um, I've also done work that's looked at how groups of consumers use particular kinds of consumption objects. So I did a study that looked at book clubs and how women who are part of these book clubs use a consumption object, a book, um, in particular ways to help better their lives through that interplay of discussion in the group setting. 
Um, most recently, I've also done a lot of work on families and looking at how the family as a collective um, works with the marketplace and impacts consumption. So for example, I did a study that looked at first-time parents um, and the challenges that come along with that big life transition and how that works. Um, I have another project that looks at what happens when family members don't agree on how they should do something. Mm. Um, if there's a particular family practice or tradition, so maybe it's Friday night game night, what happens when your teenager doesn't want to do that anymore? Interesting. How does the family navigate that? I'd like you to talk about that a little yeah. bit more, either the, the running example or the family example. Sure. But I, I wanted to ask a question of you uh, first. When you're talking about researching groups, let's say runners, mm -hmm. within that group, there's got to be all kinds of subgroups, right? There's got to be old runners and young runners and new runners and seasoned runners and marathon runners and short distance runners. Yes. And so how, how do you deal with that? So what I actually do, so it's interesting, my research actually focused on the heterogeneity within the community and how you balance all those various parts. And there's heterogeneity and difference both in terms of the types of runners, old, new, fast, slow, people that do it just to be fit and healthy, people that do it because this is their job and they're making money off of running fast and races and mm. winning races. But then there's also lots of other people that are part of the community. There's local running stores that often serve as community hubs. Then there's chain running stores that come into the mix, which bring in a different dynamic. Then there's the race organizers. Then there's the people that make the shoes and sell the shoes and the advertisements. So there's a huge number of people that are, and entities that are part of the community. Um, so with my work, what I looked at is I talked to all of them hmm. and different members from um, representatives from each of these different constituents um, and looked at what are their experiences, how do they work with each other, um, and tried to understand those dynamics of how this community works with all these different kinds of players embedded inside of it. I would think getting to these potential respondents would be a, an enormous and difficult task because not everybody's going to be at the same place, more or less, at the around the same time, like I say, marathon versus, yeah. you know, sprints, and they're not going to be at the same. How, how did you deal with that? So this was actually, it was part of my dissertation work. Um, and so I did a multi-year long ethnography of the running community. Wow. So how do I do it? It takes time. I spend years doing it, um, embedded in the community and looking at these different elements. So I talked to lots and lots of different runners. I volunteered at races. I helped organize races. I served as a representative on a national running organization that helped coordinate all these things. So I really got myself into the community and tried to take on as many different roles as I could so that I could make contacts with the key players and different kinds of people. And then collected massive amounts of data and spent longer than I should have probably, um, wow. analyzing all of it and writing it up. Are you a runner yourself? Um, I like to think of myself as a runner. Um, and, by, and so there were times in my life where I've run more than others. Um, but I think for someone that identifies as a runner, whether you're actually running that particular phase in your life, you always think of yourself as a, a bit of a runner. It sort of sticks with you once you're in it. So I'm wondering, with the degree of knowledge that you had going in, was there a learning curve to understanding, I don't know, the terminology or, you know, the values? and? Absolutely. And so I came into it not being a runner at all and having had no experience with it. I had an idea that I wanted to sort of look at something that had to do with sport and advertisements. And that was pretty much where I started with my thinking on it. 
Um, and then I got more and more into it piece by piece. So there's a huge learning curve. Um, but that's always the case when you're doing any kind of work that's um, culturally based, where you have to go into a context and learn. And so I didn't know what it was like to be a runner. I didn't know what it was like to be part of a book club. I didn't know what it was like to be a first-time parent. Um, I have another project that looks at soccer families. I didn't play soccer growing up, so I had to learn about that world. And that's part of the research process is learning about the context, learning how to understand it, and then collecting the data and having doing that perspective taking um, to understand other people's experiences within that context. Right. I guess that's a, sort of a difference between inductive and deductive. Very uh, much so, yes. Yeah. yeah. We've been talking about running. Can you talk a little bit more now about some of the findings that you had related to advertising and, and consumer behavior for that particular community? So what um, I ended up learning, which was particularly interesting, was really about this, these dynamics. Um, because a lot of the times you look at the community and you have these fast runners that say, I don't want these slow runners to be part of my race. They're not doing the same thing that I would. There was a lot of tension. But at the same time, the community was thriving and growing um, and doing well. And what I found is that all these different constituents, their dependence upon each other. Um, the fast runners need the slow runners, and the slow runners need the fast runners for the community to, to survive. And they do it because of really stuff. So fast runners, people that take it very, very seriously, what they need is they need races, they need products, they need research and development, they need Nike, for example, to come up with better, faster, lighter shoes, for example, that stop them from getting injured when they're running over 100 miles a week. Um, but what incentivizes Nike to do that is to have a mass market that buys their stuff. And the way to get the mass market is by having an inclusive community where you have slow runners, where you have the weekend warriors, where you have people that just jog and come in and out. So what we find is that these fast runners, even though they have this huge identity value associated with what they do, they really need this huge base of other people to be part of the community to support the marketing infrastructure. Now, let me jump in here. I can see a marketer like Nike or Adidas yeah. saying, okay, we need a community. It makes it easier to market. It's, it's identifiable. But if I'm a new runner, I don't think I would necessarily be in my personal experience, motivated to be part of a community, I would run because I want to run. Yeah. Um, and there are some people that don't necessarily think of themselves as part of the community. Um, but what a lot of my informants describe is a story of slowly becoming part of it. And there being um, some people are very active and part of the community. They go to the races, they talk to the people, their friends are runners, they join running clubs. But for other people, their engagement with the community is much more subtle. And it might be as simple as they're running along the street at six o'clock in the morning and they go past another runner and there's a nod of acknowledgement. It's like, we're in this together. Right. Um, and so it's not a huge part of their lives. It's not a huge part of their identity. They don't do a lot of stuff on the weekend. But there's a recognition of this consciousness of kind. Um, that there's a connection between you and these other people. Um, and sometimes the connection happens at the imagined level in terms of an imagined community where you don't necessarily interact with any, anybody else, but you think of yourself as, I'm one of the people that do this. Mm. And that creates a sense of community. Now, okay, I'm starting, I'm starting to get it. I can see yeah. it's sort of almost, I might start out at a, at a low level of, of a community identification, yeah. but as I get into it, I can see, okay, the, I see these people more or less regularly or, or at least yeah. enough to think that I know them or I nod to them. How 
is this information, some of your research, then used to market to a person, say Nike, how would they market to a person like me? How would they market to uh, a very um, committed runner? So there's when you think about the way that Nike becomes involved, there's lots of different things they could do. One way is to think about the kinds of messages, for example, that they might put in advertisements. And there what becomes important is understanding what kinds of messages appeal to different kinds of runners, but also thinking about how is the other group going to react to that. Mm -hmm. And so if you have an ad that says fast runners are bad to appeal to slow runners, fast runners aren't going to be happy. So thinking about those inter-community dynamics become important. But what, what I think is most interesting is not necessarily thinking about the advertisement and getting the sell it, get how to get people to buy the products, but thinking about how Nike as a company or a retailer, for example, as well, becomes considered a legitimate part of that community. Hmm. And so there it's not just enough to make the shoes. You really have to get the buy-in from the community that, okay, we do... We are part of the community. We are granted access to this world, um, which means that the companies have to think about what are the values of this community? How are we going to support the community? And what can our role be with that? And the role cannot just be, we're going to make money off of you. Right. Because once you start looking at things at this community level, you see these community dynamics. And this is, for the people that are part of it, this is their world. And they don't want these interlopers coming in and just taking advantage of them. So companies have to earn a legitimate position within the community by respecting the community, respecting their dynamics, respecting what's important to them. Right. And so that's what becomes really important is how companies work with the community to support those collective goals, which are decided by the consumer, not necessarily by the company. So it's really about becoming part of the community. Um, and that this isn't just a target market to make money off of. These are our people and we are part of this world. And some companies do it better than others. Um, and certainly we see a lot of local retailers really taking on that role. So in Kingston, for example, Runner's Choice becomes very much a hub of the community. Um, and you see that happening across cities in all the way around North America, that you have these stores that really become the heart of the community and the central element of it. Um, where they are truly a member of the community and not just a retail provider. Blind Date with Knowledge is broadcast on CFRC Radio, 101.9 FM, Campus and Community, Queens Radio in Kingston. All the episodes of Blind Date with Knowledge are available on the CFRC website or the Queens University Research website at queensu.ca slash research. I close out each episode of Blind Date with Knowledge by asking my guests to share something personal related to their research or their motivation associated with their research. So, Tandy, back to you. Tell us something about how you got into this ethno ethnographic uh, approach to doing research. And So, I wish I had a really good academic story to tell about this. Um, but I really stumbled into it. So I was doing my master's degree, and I was actually doing my master's degree here, and I was being supervised by a fantastic professor, um, Jay Handelman, who's still in the School of Business. And we were talking a little about what to do for my master's thesis. Um, and I sort of decided I was going to do sort of this qualitative, interpretive work. And then I was having second thoughts about it. Um, and I said, oh, maybe I should do an experiment. All my peers were doing, doing experiments. And so I went into Jay's office, and I said, I'm thinking maybe I should do an experiment. And so he said, okay. 
let's think about what you're interested in. He's like, tell me what you want your independent variable to be and your dependent variable to be. And I didn't have a good answer because I realized my brain doesn't think that way. Yeah. My brain doesn't like to divide out the various elements, even though I do do experiments in some of my work when necessary. Um, I much prefer thinking about a holistic picture and thinking about really looking at the hundreds of different pieces that are interplaying with each other and thinking about the complexity and understanding the complexity as opposed to teasing out right. a handful of variables. Um, and so that means you have to go into the context. You have to get to know people. You have to get to know their lives. Um, and that's what I find that I love about the kind of work that I do. My guest in this episode of Blind Date with Knowledge has been Tandy Thomas, Associate Professor of Marketing and, and a Distinguished Faculty Fellow of Marketing in the Smith School of Business. If you have any questions about anything related to research that you'd like discussed by our guests, or if you have comments about today's conversation with Tandy, please email me, Barry Kaplan at bdwk at cfrc.ca. Thank you for tuning in.